Hey, skimmers. Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to tell you about another show you might enjoy, Not Over It, a new podcast for the pop culture obsessed. Join Pop Sugar's editors each week as they break down the latest and greatest in entertainment. If you're the person in your friend group everyone turns to for info on the latest celeb breakup, a new Spotify playlist, or a TV wreck, then check out Not Over It on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to Skim This. This was a big week in politics. In New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned, while down in D.C., Senate Dems and Republicans came together to finally pass an infrastructure bill. It was also a week for COVID news. As the CDC said, if you're pregnant, get the vax. And as lawmakers debate how to get kids back to school IRL, we'll break down four key ways schools can bring students back safely. Later, if you've tried to go to a live event recently, or maybe even a restaurant indoors, you may have been told you've got to get an app for that. So Team Skim This is hitting download to answer your questions about verifying your vaccination status. And finally, maybe you remember learning about the Hoover Dam in high school. We'll zoom in on why the big reservoir behind it is drying up and what droughts across the West could mean going forward. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we have breaking news. The Pentagon announced it is sending troops to help with a partial evacuation of the U.S. embassy in Kabul. Concerns are growing as the Taliban rapidly gains more ground in Afghanistan. Here's the context. The U.S. military is hoping to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by the end of the month, which would end the longest war in U.S. history. And as the U.S. heads for the exit, what's unfolding in our wake is grim. In just the last week, the Taliban, the armed group that U.S. troops have fought against for almost two decades, has seized around two-thirds of the country. Just today, it seized Afghanistan's third-largest city— and cut off the capital, Kabul, from huge parts of the country by capturing a highway. With the Taliban closing in on Kabul, the U.S. seems to be realizing, wait a second, we need to get out of here. Today, the Pentagon announced 3,000 U.S. troops are being sent to Afghanistan to protect U.S. diplomats, as well as Afghans applying for visas to be resettled elsewhere. And now, it looks like U.S. troops could soon get tasked with literally evacuating people, making sure they can get to the airport safely as whatever bubble of safety used to exist in the capital disappears. The historical precedent here is pretty bleak. At the end of the Vietnam War in 1975, some Americans and other fleeing civilians had to be airlifted from an embassy rooftop by helicopter as communist troops took over the city of Saigon. Images of that evacuation are infamous, and President Biden has tried to make it very clear, we are not going to see a repeat of that in Afghanistan. Today, State Department spokesperson Ned Price tried to argue, we're not ghosting, even as a reporter emotionally made the case that that's definitely what it looks like. There is no way you can sit there and say that the people of Afghanistan watching the Taliban take over provinces, watching their country crumble, are now going to watch American diplomats get on military planes and leave the country, that that sends a signal that the U.S. is with them in the long haul, diplomatically. Uh, look at what we've been doing. Look at the investment we have made. This is not abandonment. 
This is not an evacuation. Uh, this is not the wholesale withdrawal. But things in Afghanistan are moving fast. So fast that just minutes later, when Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby briefed reporters, it sounded like that famous scene from Vietnam very well could repeat itself in the coming weeks. So we do anticipate that there will be airlift required of us, and we are uh, working through the, the final plans right now to, to put that into place. Next up. The sudden resignation of three-term New York Governor Andrew Cuomo today came as a shock to many. Here's the context. On Tuesday, Andrew Cuomo stepped down as New York governor after more than a decade in office. Calls for Cuomo to resign reached a fever pitch last week after an investigation by New York's attorney general found that Cuomo had sexually harassed at least 11 state employees. Cuomo has been under scrutiny since last December, when the first woman came forward with allegations against him. The entire time since, Cuomo has denied any wrongdoing. Even in his resignation speech on Tuesday, he tried to make it seem like he was stepping down not because he was truly sorry, but to spare voters the distraction of the politically motivated campaign against him. Though, even if Cuomo thinks his political future is still in his hands, at least one woman who accused him of wrongdoing will be filing suit against him, and prosecutors in New York are still investigating him for potential crimes. Regardless, Cuomo is now in the final two weeks of his term, and his soon-to-be replacement will be Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. When she takes over, she'll become the first female governor of New York. Cuomo's resignation is significant because, for many, it marks a moment of accountability. While a Hollywood mogul has been imprisoned and CEOs have stepped down, political Me Too stories have often been tarnished with partisan politics and political infighting with survivors often ending up as an afterthought. But now, Cuomo leaving office means a high-ranking political official from a political dynasty is not too big to fail. Here's our next headline this week. Major victory in Washington for President Biden, the Senate passing his trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. Now for some context. After months of concerns about spending priorities and the deficit, it seems like senators in Washington decided to play nice and finally pass an infrastructure bill this week. And they did it in a pretty bipartisan way, with 19 Senate Republicans joining all 50 Democrats to give the package a thumbs up. This seems like a huge breakthrough, not only because it's the biggest investment in U.S. infrastructure like roads, bridges, and the internet in over a decade— but also because, lately, it's felt like politicians on Capitol Hill couldn't agree on anything. But senators won't be celebrating this $1 trillion package for long, because the bill is in for a rude awakening in the House of Representatives. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a lot of progressives in the House have said, we're not passing anything until the Senate approves a $3.5 trillion bill to expand America's social safety net. Yeah, three and a half trillion. That monster bill would do things like make community college free, expand Medicare, and implement paid family and medical leave. Many Democrats in the Senate love these policies, while others are more on the fence, and Democrats can't afford to lose a single vote. So basically, even though the infrastructure bill could be signed into law, possibly within days, its fate is now tied to a more iffy social welfare bill. It's a risky strategy, though if it pays off in the coming months, Team Biden will be on a roll. 
And finally, did you previously hear something like this? There have been mixed messages about the vaccine for pregnant women. While the CDC said it appears safe, they stopped short of encouraging it. We're talking about this now because the CDC just changed its tune this week, telling anyone who's pregnant in the U.S., go get vaxxed against COVID-19. As the Delta variant spreads, the CDC says people who aren't vaccinated not only face a higher risk of getting a bad case of COVID, but could wind up with pregnancy complications from the virus, including possible miscarriages or stillbirths. And the CDC also has the receipts showing the vaccines don't introduce pregnancy risks of their own. It analyzed the data from around 2,500 pregnant people who got at least one dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine before their 20th week and found no corresponding increase in the risk of miscarriage. Not to mention, a study from earlier this year showed pregnant people who do get vaxxed may be able to pass antibodies on to their unborn kids. Still, there's a long way to go. The CDC says only 23% of pregnant people in the U.S. have received at least one shot, a significantly lower percentage than the country's overall vaccination rate. A lot of us probably get nostalgic when we think about going back to school, stocking up on perfectly sharpened pencils or picking out that perfect first day outfit. But last year, students had to swap that for a Zoom subscription as school got totally disrupted. It was a mess. It was hybrid. There were some people who never even got back inside the classroom. That's Laura Meckler, a national education writer for The Washington Post. She told us last year's hot mess of a school year had a really negative impact on students. Students not only learned a lot less, but they didn't get to hang out with their friends. Not to mention, many parents and caretakers had the added burden of becoming teachers while juggling their day jobs. Kids in lower income or more rural communities dealt with many of these challenges and more. Some struggled with internet access, didn't have a device to log into class, or had parents who couldn't do double duty as part-time tutors. Because of those challenges, the New York Times found that over a million kids didn't even enroll in school last year. Some kids just were essentially not in school, period. Plus, on top of enrollment problems and keeping kids physically safe and healthy, schools had to contend with the fallout of a particularly traumatic year. And those challenges haven't gone away. We need to see how schools are helping kids with recovery from last year, both from a social-emotional point of view as well as an academic point of view. There were a lot of kids who did well last year, but others really went through hell last year. So this year, the stakes are high, and schools are reopening, but there are two major things making it complicated. First, the Delta variant. Overall, new COVID cases are at their highest level since February, and as of last week, children now make up 15% of new cases. Delta is also leading more children to be hospitalized with severe cases. The second thing making reopening complicated? None of the FDA-approved vaccines for adults are available to kids under 12. Which means another proven way to reduce COVID risks is taking center stage, along with the political disagreements that come with it. So what we're seeing this fall is that there's a lot of conversation about masks. 
Like almost everything in this pandemic and certainly everything related to schooling, it is political. And there are places in this country where masks are being mandated and there are places where governors are telling school districts, you are barred from issuing a mandate. So it has gotten very messy. Let's zoom in on one place where the drama is high right now, Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis is a Republican. He's kind of made his name off the idea of personal freedom and we're not gonna allow this pandemic to basically be the boss of us. Vis-a-vis schools, he's issued an executive order that says school districts may not require masks. A lot of big school districts in Florida are saying, whoa, 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 we see our numbers. Florida has very low vaccination numbers and yet very high, not coincidentally, COVID-19 numbers. And so they're saying this makes no sense not to require masks. That kind of defiance from a school district to the governor is a little unusual. And this fight is far from over. The stakes are going up because the DeSantis administration said, we'll cut your funding. We're going to cut the pay of superintendents and school board members. And these superintendents are like, well, you know what? Fine, cut my pay. The safety of my kids is more important than that. So you have this game of chicken going on. The fight over mask mandates is also playing out in a bunch of other states with Republican governors, including Texas, Arizona, South Carolina, Utah, and Oklahoma. Who's going to win that game of chicken is anyone's guess. But on Tuesday, the judiciary branch entered the chat when a judge in Texas pretty much told Governor Greg Abbott, sorry, you can't ban mask mandates in schools, delivering a blow to some governors and handing a W to some school districts and to science. Another controversial measure, requiring vaccines for adults in schools. Vaccine mandates in general are a tricky topic, But as more employers and local governments start requiring vaccines, you may see school districts and some prominent supporters of teachers start to get on board with the idea of mandates. We had Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, come out and say that she's changed her mind because of this Delta variant and the numbers and how they're going up. The White House has said nearly nine in 10 teachers already have the shot. But teachers aren't the only grownups in schools is an issue for some school staff. The rates of school staff vaccinations, some polling suggests, is much lower than teachers. So far, some teachers and a lot of doctors, including Dr. Fauci, seem pretty on board with vaccine mandates for adults in schools. And this week, California became the first state to require teachers to get vaxxed or submit to regular testing. As for whether we'll see a vaccine mandate for eligible students, if that ever happens, it's probably still a long ways off. Meckler told us, putting masks and vaccines aside, there are some things schools could consider that are less likely to cause a throwdown at the next Board of Ed meeting. Things like improving ventilation in classrooms or trying to keep things socially distant. However, those measures come with their own challenges. Of course, the problem with ventilation is that that's expensive. Now, the districts do have money. There has been money that has been sent their way. But like if you're really going to do like HEPA filters and things that are more expensive, some schools, for instance, are so old, the windows don't even open. Distancing. Now, that has been ratcheted back. At one point, we were all six feet apart. It was very hard for schools to manage six feet apart. They could not have their entire class back in session. Most schools do not have room to keep people six feet apart. 
And while the federal government, through the American Rescue Plan, sent school districts funds to make these kinds of upgrades earlier this year, these fixes take time. And education funding hasn't always been equitably distributed in the past. So that's how schools could make things safer for teachers and students, not to mention wider communities. But how's it going? Now that school is underway in a number of areas, Meckler told us we've already seen some schools shutting back down because of outbreaks, though those are mostly in small and rural areas. One thing we have to keep in mind is that even last year when there was no vaccination, the spread in schools was very low. There really was not a lot of transmission in school. So I'm not expecting there to be a lot this time either. But even though transmission in schools may have been low last year, With Delta and the increase in children being infected nationwide, people are more concerned about kids going back to class. Especially because, like anything pandemic-related, transmission in one part of a community can influence everyone else. Obviously, we'll be seeing how these politics play out regarding the mandates for vaccines as well as for masks. Also, I'll be looking to see at what point we get an experimental authorization for younger children so that they can be vaccinated. Vaccines for kids under 12 could be a potential game changer, giving parents more comfort about the safety of their kids, even if school boards can't get on the same page. And it's something Meckler's been thinking about a lot lately. My older son is 12. Today was his birthday, and he was, in fact, vaccinated his first shot today. He celebrated at the CVS. And, but, but my younger one is eight, and so he can't be vaccinated yet. So I will be looking forward personally to the point when he can be vaccinated because I know that's what will keep him the safest. Let's talk about verifying your vaccine status. More and more places are now requiring proof of vaccination to do things like eat indoors, go to a concert, or hit the gym. And some countries are also requiring proof you've been vaxxed to enter. And since carrying around your original paper vaccine card feels super risky, not to mention that thing barely fits in your wallet, phone-based apps are stepping in to help. New York rolling out a new app some people call a COVID passport. Digital vaccine passports. You'll need to download the Clear app, which will create a health pass for a specific show. If you've received your vaccination at a Walmart store, you can download a digital copy onto your device. You'll be linked to a QR code and a digital copy of your vaccination. But why make it easy and have one app that every American can use? Team Biden has said, we're not making a national app. Cue states, cities, and lots of private companies all duking it out to create their own systems. To put a few of those systems to the test, and to learn about what the process is like, our producer Luke was inspired by Olympic track and field and got our audio team together from all over the U.S. to turn this into a race to see who could get digital proof of their vaccination the fastest. Okay, we're recording. It's time to meet the competitors. I'll go first. I'm Alex, and I'm going to sign up for New York City's COVID Safe app. This is Kira. I'll be doing the accessory pass from New York State. Hey, I'm Luke. I'm representing the great state of New Jersey, and I'm going to try to download this app called Docket. I'm Bridget. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to register with my IR, which is used by eight different states. And I'm Graylin, and I'm going to be signing up for the California state system and hopefully getting a QR code saying I'm vexed. All right, 
Everybody's lined up and ready to go. I'm going to click the stopwatch now. Wait, do you want me to complete this on my phone? Obviously. Okay, let me go get it. <laughs> Wait a second. False start on Bridget. Let's try that again. Can you give us a dramatic countdown? I feel like we need one. Alex, that's got to be you. Five, four, three, two, one. I literally can't even get the link open. Cannot connect to App Store. It seems I need my driver's license, a photo of my vaccine card, and for some reason, which doesn't even make sense, I need a negative COVID test, like a negative PCR COVID test. Oh, nice. Docket has integration with Google and Apple, so you can just create an account automatically. So it seems like Luke may have rigged this race in his favor. But wait, we have our first finisher. Guys, do you want to hear the most anticlimactic thing ever? I put in my info. It just asked for my phone number and my name and my birth date. And it asked me to check a privacy box. I hit it. And it's done. It just says, thank you. Your submission has been received. I guess I'm done. Now we have two more competitors coming in for silver and bronze. Okay, well, I have three green check marks because I have my photo ID, my vaccine card, and a picture of my COVID test. But now there's nowhere for me to go. There's no button that says submit. There's no button that says get my pass. Yay! Docket has found my vaccination record, which is very cool. It says I have two shots. I think I'm done. But wait, some members of Team Skim This are struggling. Bridget, how you doing? Bad. It took me a really long time to put in my information with scrolling and all of that, like put in my date of birth. And once I did all of that, it tells me that I do not have an official immunization record. And now I'm talking to somebody in a chat. I'm going to fill out this records request because I think somebody has to actually review this. So I don't think I'm going to get registered today. I think you guys are going to have to put me down as a fail as well. I had to put in my name, date of birth, what shot I got on the date of my second shot. And it's now just saying, unfortunately, we were not able to confirm your vaccination or the test information from the information you entered. All right, let's recap the results. After Graylin flew through California's digital vaccine portal in just 90 seconds, the referees are reviewing this one. I have a text message from California. Unfortunately, the information you provided does not match the information in our system. Contact CDPH COVID-19 Virtual Assistant for help in matching your record to your contact information. More on what went wrong there in a second. Meanwhile, over the river in New Jersey, Luke got verified on an app called Docket, which is also used in the state of Utah in just over three minutes. He also signed up for the digital vaccine record from the company Clear, which does airport security too. And that took four and a half minutes, which was also how long it took me to complete New York City's app. Though, disclaimer, this one looks super not legit. It's also the same app where somebody uploaded a photo of Mickey Mouse and the app said, yep, you're approved. And 10 minutes into the competition, after initially thinking she'd been disqualified from the race, Kira crossed the finish line, a bit embarrassed. Turns out it wasn't New York State's Excelsior app that made the mistake. Guys, I know what I did. I got really, I got too competitive and was trying to go fast because I knew I was behind. And I put in the wrong vaccination date. I put in my year of birth instead of the year I was vaccinated. And now I have a QR code. I'm done. 
I got it. <laughs> now that we've awarded some medals, I think we can say we learned a few things. First, if you live in a state with an official COVID vaccine verification app and you got vaccinated there, you'll probably have an easier time finding your records and getting your badge of vaccination. But for Bridget, who lives in D.C. but got vaccinated in Maryland, or for Graylin, who lives in California but was vaxxed in two different states, this process could take a lot longer. It says that my request is in. It could approximately take two days or more due to the high volume of requests that I'm sure they are getting right now. That's better than mine, Bridget. Mine says two to three weeks. So plan ahead. Even if getting a digital proof of vaccination can take as little as five minutes, in other cases, it could take weeks. Our second big takeaway is that you're probably going to be downloading more than one app. New York State and New York City already have competing apps, and individual workplaces, businesses, concert venues, or arenas may require you to use a specific app, too. So check out the requirements in advance and get ready to create one of those app folders on your phone. This is also an important heads up if you're traveling out of the country, like to Canada or the European Union. They've got their own government apps and probably aren't going to recognize my three sketchy green check marks. Same with airlines. And the bottom line is your vaccine card is probably going to remain super valuable even though these apps exist. You'll need an image of it for most apps or passes you need to download. So treat it like your prized pink Razer flip phone from 2007 and know where it is at all times. Or at the very least, have a high quality photo of it in your phone's favorites folder. And if you're thinking, damn, this thing is pretty flimsy, who thought of making it paper? Unfortunately, that's just how it's gonna be for a while. And PS, don't ask your mom to borrow her laminator because we may need to break out these cards soon to record booster shots. To read more about three vaccine passport apps that are starting to get used in a lot of places around the U.S., check out the link in our show notes. If you're a U.S. iPhone user, chances are you might have heard something recently about Apple saying it's going to start going through images on your phone. Some advocates call Apple's change of heart a game changer, while others are worried about privacy concerns. But don't worry, unless you're really up to no good, this probably won't affect you. Here's why in 60 seconds. In 2018, the New York Times reported that tech companies had found around 45 million photos and videos of children being sexually abused online. Dropbox, Google, and Microsoft have already created ways to automatically scan uploaded photos to spot images that could be tied to abuse. And now, Apple is joining in, after previously saying everything on iPhones is private. Famously, Apple wouldn't even help unlock a phone as part of a terrorism investigation. Starting later this year, before photos are uploaded to the iCloud, iPhones will compare photos against a database of missing and exploited children. If there are matches, Apple will flag photos for review by a real person, who could then make a complaint to law enforcement. Apple says its system is secure and won't accidentally flag images that haven't already been tied to abuse, like a photo of your kid playing in the bath. 
Apple's also said it's drawing the line there and will refuse any government requests to scan iPhones that don't relate to child abuse. But some privacy advocates aren't convinced and say Apple is now effectively spying on users. And who knows what other private info it might share with governments in the future. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the week's news? Send us a suggestion to audio at theskim.com. There's one climate story we've had a close eye on over the last couple of weeks. We are talking an extremely dangerous heat wave. Not that one. The summer wildfire season is intensifying with nearly a dozen new fires reported just yesterday alone. Or that one. It's the worst drought situation ever on record. More than 60 million people west of the Rocky Mountains are experiencing drought conditions. There it is. The western U.S. is dry. Really, really dry. I would say this year is pretty close to rock bottom. Dr. Becky Bollinger is an assistant state climatologist in Colorado. She says defining a drought is complicated. It's not just less precipitation, like rain or snow. We are experiencing droughts that are hotter, and those hotter extremes are making these droughts worse by sucking up more moisture into the air. And while this year is really bad for some of those reasons and the record heat we've seen, this has actually been going on for two decades. Typically, we would see one year being a lot wetter than average, another year being drier than average. But in the end, it all kind of balances out. But since the turn of the century, the Western United States has seen a, a lot higher frequency of those very dry years. And while we do have some wet years or closer to normal years sprinkled in between, they're not enough to recover from the drought conditions that we've been having. 20-plus years of that has left a lot of water supplies at scary low levels. For instance, all over the West, there are dams holding back reservoirs that provide water for tens of millions of people. Turn on a faucet in Arizona or Nevada or bite into produce grown in California, and there's a good chance water from a reservoir made that possible. Bollinger said these reservoirs are like bank accounts, where you're saving not for a rainy day, but for a dry one. You would have a drought, you would use that water, and then you would have a wet period and you would recover the losses that you took from that dry period and it would be ready again. Unfortunately, we've been making more withdrawals than deposits. Making matters worse, Population growth across the West means more people are withdrawing water from our dwindling account. So not only are we decreasing the water supply on an already over-allocated system, but we're adding more people that need that water. And so these together are really the perfect storm for making what would just be regular droughts into these mega droughts that we really can't recover from the way we act now. To see this pattern really up close and personal, there's one place to look. So Lake Mead is the storage reservoir behind Hoover Dam. Dr. Sharon Megdal is the director of the Water Resources Research Center at the University of Arizona. She's an expert on water policy and on Lake Mead. It's part of the Colorado River system, and it's the biggest reservoir in the U.S., 
in Arizona, Nevada, and California all rely on it for water. And it looks different these days. In the year 2000, the reservoir was full. And so all you saw was a water level and brown above it, the brown of the beautiful boulders and rugged mountainous terrain of, of that river at that point. But as the water level's gone down, there's white crust, the salts, the, the minerals are on the sides of the mountain. And so what you see is you see the brown and then you see the white and the white is just getting taller and taller as the level of the lake goes down. If Lake Mead is the Southwest's water savings account, the bank is about to issue a low funds alert. There will be, as early as a few days from now, an announcement by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation that there will be a tier one shortage declared. That means water levels have dropped so low that the government is expected to start cutting some people off from their Lake Mead supply. Farmers in Arizona will see the effects first, if and likely when water restrictions start in January. And if water levels keep dropping like they're expected to, we could see Tier 2 or Tier 3 shortages over the next couple of years. And that would mean much bigger cuts. Think way less and likely way more expensive water for cities and farms, everywhere from Phoenix to Los Angeles. And then there's the hydroelectric plant at the Hoover Dam. Less water in the reservoir means less of that clean and cheap power. While all eyes are on Lake Mead, a similar pattern is playing out all over the West right now. Reservoirs that used to look like lush lakes now look like drained bathtubs. Dr. Megdal says states have planned for this, but it's still a very big deal. I think what this pending shortage declaration does is just drive home that this is real, it's going to happen. It's not something only in the future. What's, I think, um, most uh, concerning about where we are now is that we really don't know if we'll climb out of this back into a situation even like we had in the 1980s and 90s, or if this is truly the new uh, normal, what we can expect going forward. And experts say if mega drought is the new normal, there will have to be changes to how we live. Fewer lawns that require daily water. Fewer swimming pools. Better systems for reclaiming and reusing water. Or a shift to crops that aren't so water-intensive. I think it's important to point out that these are things that are manageable and that we can change. We have the power to change. That's Becky Bollinger again, the Colorado climatologist. She gets that things might feel bleak right now, but thinks there's a reason to have hope. There are some things with climate change that they're really irreversible. Things like ice caps and global sea level rise. But drought in the West is something that we can better manage and we can work on solutions for that so that we are better prepared to adapt to those changes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help from Sajine Coriellis. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. The Skim's senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. 
Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.